0: Welcome to week five of Logos, Foundations of Effective Bible Study. Thanks for joining us for this Equipping Class podcast. And we're going to jump right into uh, some basic hermeneutical principles for how we interpret the Bible. And and this is what we're going to be looking at in these uh, last two weeks of this study. And so I want to start... Um, By just quickly reminding you of some of what we have looked at in previous weeks, we've been talking primarily about inductive Bible study, um, which is a three-part study method for engaging the Word of God. And it is heavily centered on observation, interpretation, and application, um, which to me are just kind of the three most foundational things Um, that we can be thinking about when studying the Bible. We're not just talking about reading the Bible. We're talking more about digging into what does the Bible mean and what does the Bible mean for my life. And so in order for us to arrive at those things in an adequate and accurate way, um, we have to begin by laying a foundation of observation, really letting the text speak for itself, um, learning what is what is. The text actually say, what does it not say, what does it imply, what is uh, explicit in the text, um, letting it speak for itself, and then moving to the phase of interpretation, once we really know the text well, and asking the question, what does this mean? And we saw in previous weeks that there can only really be one meaning of a text, but there can be many applications, and so if we've done our job of observing Scripture well, We can arrive at an accurate interpretation. And then we can move on to application, which is not asking what does this mean, it's asking what does this mean for me. And so, what we're doing in these final two weeks is uh, just digging into some rules and practices for interpreting the Word of God so that we can move on to that stage of application and um, have the best information possible. And so, Um, This word I keep using is the word hermeneutics or hermeneutical, and uh, all that is is a geeky way of saying uh, uh, the science of interpretation or the study of interpretation. That's what biblical hermeneutics is all about, and it's uh, one of many disciplines, um, intellectual disciplines that relate to uh, the Bible or the study of the Bible or the study of God's Word. And so just, just real quick to kind of give you some insight into where it falls uh, within those disciplines, um, we could begin by saying one of the most foundational fields of study related to the Bible is the study of the canon itself, the study of the biblical canon. Um, what are the books that make up the biblical canon or the biblical collection? Um, why are those books in the Bible? Why are other books that were written in that same time period not in the Bible? Um, There's a whole field of study around this. It's fascinating stuff, and and it is kind of a starting place because (laughs) ultimately we're entering into Bible study with an understanding that this is the Word of God, that this is uh, without error, as we've said in recent weeks. And so we want to also... Uh, maybe spend some time digging into why do we believe that in the first place? And where did these books come from? And why do we say that these books are the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God? And so the study of the canon is going to do all of that. Uh, Next, we could move from that into a field called textual criticism. And textual criticism is all about studying the actual uh, manuscripts of the Bible to arrive at an understanding of what they say. And so, what a, what a textual critic is going to do is uh, they're going to lay out all of these manuscripts, all of these early manuscripts that we have of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, and these are copies, right? These aren't the original uh, autographs of the Bible, but instead, these are copies that have been made. ...of the original manuscripts of Scripture. And so we want to lay them all out. Um, We want to note maybe the differences between them or among them. We want to um, make note of the ways that they are similar. And when you have as many uh, copies, early copies of the Bible... ...and the books of the Bible in existence as we do today... um, ...it can be very easy, honestly to arrive at a pretty clear understanding of what the original autographs of Scripture actually said. And so this whole field of science, textual criticism, is dedicated to that. Uh, From there, uh, there's a field called historical criticism, which is uh, linking the uh, history of culture and the history of the human race to what we see in the Bible, um, and just making those connections And then from there we get to hermeneutics, which is, as we've said, the science of interpretation. So now that we know what it says and we know where it came from and we know maybe the historical cultural situation that it came from, now we can begin asking the question, what does it mean? Uh, From there we move on to uh, complementary disciplines. One is called biblical theology and the other is called systematic theology. And this is kind of the beginning stage of application to some extent. Uh, This is doctrinalizing what we find in Scripture. It's taking our interpretation of the Bible and um, putting it into a form that uh, in some way systematizes individual topics or ideas. And so in biblical theology, um, what happens is... The Bible is considered as a whole, and we consider how God has revealed himself over time and revealed his heart and his intentions, what he believes to be good and bad. We examine those things over the course of Scripture and synthesize them into a form um, that in some way kind of systematizes them. And, And so sometimes you'll see biblical theologians are books of biblical theology that take a, a particular area of Scripture and just zero in on what is the theology of this area. And so you might uh, pick up a book on the theology of the Pentateuch, which are the first five books of the, Bible, or of the Old Testament, um, or a, a theology of the Psalms, for example. And so that's what biblical theology does. Systematic theology um, takes individual topics, such as grace or sin, humanity, salvation, the list goes on. It takes those individual topics and then explores the whole Bible to find all of the places where that particular topic is mentioned or taught or alluded to. And then systematic theology seeks to synthesize all of that and systematize it into individual categories. Um, so that you can then go and sit down and read everything that the Bible has to say about sin, or about grace, or about salvation. And um, a systematic theology book is going to essentially have um, each of those things in chapters. So you're going to read a chapter on salvation, and, uh, you know, as I said, it's, it's just doctrinalizing what we find in Scripture. And then finally, uh, there's a field called practical theology. And practical theology um, is even more about application. It's it's about how do we take what we've interpreted in God's Word and that we've now doctrinalized into these systems, and how do we apply it in our everyday lives? Um, What does the Bible mean in today's modern world? Um, How do we uh, pragmatically apply the teachings of Scripture to today's world? Practical theology is going to do that, and so that gives you hopefully some idea of where hermeneutics falls and all of this stuff. It's kind of in the middle, you know. We start by asking where did the Bible come from, you know? Uh, how did we get this book, this collection of books, and how do we know that what it says is true and accurate and all that? And then we ask, what does it mean? And then we ask, what do we do with it? And so that's uh, that's just a little bit of insight into that. When we talk about the goals of hermeneutics, um, I want to just focus in on three big goals. One, number one goal is we want to discern God's message. Um, we want to understand what he's trying to teach us. And uh, that seems to me to be <laughs> the most important thing. Um, we also, second, secondly, we want to avoid or dispel misconceptions um, or erroneous perspectives and conclusions about what the Bible teaches. And so this is hugely important in today's world. Um, The Bible tells us that this will be hugely important. It tells us that there will be people that come along that have false gospels, that uh, deceive many people. And so we have to be, as followers of Jesus, people who are intimately aware with, with the Bible and what the Bible teaches so that we can have a response to that stuff in our world. And then number three, we want to be able to apply the Bible's message to our own lives. Um, As we've already said, um, we don't want want to just know what it says or what it means. We want to know what it means for us also. We want to know how to put this stuff into practice in our everyday lives. And so those are the goals of hermeneutics. And there are some big gaps. There are some big challenges that we have um, in this whole process. Uh, The first is there's a significant historical gap here. So the Bible was written... Uh, 2,000 plus years ago, and it was written over a period of 1,600 years, and so we are talking about people groups um, that are so far removed from our own. We're talking about people that had governmental, political structures that are completely different than those that we have today. And it is absolutely essential that we gain some historical insight as we're reading the Bible so that we can arrive at a faithful interpretation of what it means. Secondly, there is a cultural gap. This goes in line with the historical, but we live in just a completely different world than uh, Jesus lived in. And, And certainly even more so than what David or Moses lived in. It can be very hard for us to relate to their culture. Um, And culture changes rapidly. Uh, Culture in America has changed rapidly over the last 20 years. Um, Certainly, um, from my grandparents' or great-grandparents' generation, we live in a totally different world, with totally different values, with totally different ideas, with totally different ways of looking at things. Uh, The culture has changed rapidly over the last 50 years in America, and so when we start talking about a book that was written 2,000 plus years ago, you better believe there are significant um, and difficult cultural gaps, and so we have to dig into that um, in order to try to bridge some of it. Uh, Next there is what you could call a philosophical gap. This is more of a worldview gap, And, and, and I hope you notice that all of these are related to each other. Um, The philosophical gap relates to the cultural gap, which ultimately relates to the historical gap. Philosophical gap could be called the worldview gap. The way that we think about things today, the way that we think about people, the way that we view things is totally different. Uh, I think we said a few weeks ago that uh, when Jesus told his disciples, you're going to be my witnesses and Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Well, the reason why people use this phrase the ends of the earth was because the earth to them was flat. You know? The earth wasn't a round globe. They didn't know that. That didn't come for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, and so these are people who have a totally different perspective on things. Um, and so anyway, there's, this, there's just this big worldview gap between us and uh, the characters in Scripture. And then finally, and we'll spend a good bit of time on this today, there's a linguistic gap. These are very different languages than English. The Bible was written in Greek and Hebrew primarily, and these languages are nothing like English. Um, I think we've said before, the Greek language, when the New Testament was written, uh, didn't even have lowercase letters. And uh, there were no spaces in-between words. The Hebrew language reads from right to left. So these things are very far removed from the way that we speak and write and read today. Also related to this is the way that we express ourselves and the way that we uh, kind of process thoughts and communicate thoughts um, can be very different in today's world than, uh, than when the Bible was written. And so sometimes... As we're reading scripture, and this relates to the cultural and philosophical gap, sometimes as we're reading scripture, we see things that don't make sense to us, but would have made total sense to a first century audience, for example. Uh, An example I've heard given before for this is, you know, I I can go anywhere in the U.S. and say, beam me up, Scotty. And pretty much everybody knows what I'm talking about. I don't have to explain what that saying means. I don't have to explain where it came from. I can just say, beam me up, Scotty. And people know, yeah, that's Star Trek. Um, But if I were to somehow time travel 200 years into the future and tell some people, beam me up, Scotty, well, no one would have a clue what I was talking about. And the same thing is true... When we consider scripture, there are allusions and there are references that are made to things that would have been cultural touch points for people at the time, but that make no sense to us and have no relevance to us today. And we have to do some digging to figure out what to do with some of those things. And so there can be significant uh, linguistic challenges as we're reading, interpreting, and translating the Bible. And so let's just talk about some key foundational hermeneutical principles, things that we want to hold fast to as we're trying to interpret the Bible. First is uh, what I think of as one of the most foundational hermeneutical principles, and, and it's simply called the principle that Scripture interprets Scripture. And so what this means is we want to interpret um, obscure passages in light of other passages that are more clear. If we encounter something that is difficult or is not totally uh, lucid to us, we don't want to just speculate, and certainly we don't want to form doctrine around speculation. Instead, what we want to do is we want to find other passages of Scripture where things are stated clearly, and we want to apply those clear statements to passages that are more obscure. And the idea here is that, look, if this is God's Word and it's perfect, then it doesn't contradict itself. It doesn't tell us to love people and also tell us to hate people. And so as we're reading things that are difficult, if we feel like it's potentially teaching us something that clearly flies in the face of other passages that are abundantly clear, then that's a cue for us that maybe we have, we're on the wrong track with interpretation. And we want to use those clear passages to help us understand the things that are not as clear. And then also in line with Scripture interpret Scripture, I I would say we want to use the New Testament to interpret the Old Testament. And we talked about this to some extent a few weeks ago. We saw the big list of um, New Testament passages that reference the Old Testament. And certainly the myriad of ways that Jesus references the Old Testament and recontextualizes the Old Testament teaching for us. And so we want to start there. What does the New Testament have to say um, about some of the things that we are reading? What does the New Covenant have to say about some of the things that we're reading? And how does that affect our interpretation? Um, An example of this, for example, is, um, I guess that's redundant, an example of this is 1 Corinthians 9.27. Uh, This is the Apostle Paul. And here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 9.27. He says, But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. I discipline my body. You know, when people in the 1800s read that verse in the King James Version and saw the word discipline because of the culture that they lived in at the time, for many people, their minds immediately thought of corporal punishment. Because often when the word discipline was used in that era, it was relating to disciplining a child. Um, And yet, that's not what Paul was talking about at all. And yet, some people have taken this verse to mean that Paul was saying, hey, I actually punish my body physically. Um, if If I'm thinking about the wrong things, or if I'm doing something wrong. Maybe I flog myself. And that's the way that I stay on track. That's the way that I uh, prevent myself from being disqualified. That's not at all what Paul is saying here. And I think at the very least we could say that this, this particular verse is a little bit ambiguous because of this word Discipline. What does Paul mean when he says, I discipline my body? Well, luckily, all we have to do here is we have to read what is around this verse to get an understanding. So we don't have to go very far. If you go back to 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24, it says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run, you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. We do it to receive an imperishable wreath. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So when we read around this, and this is, again, context, What is very clear is that Paul is making an analogy. He is saying that the race that he is running in Christ is very similar to the race that an athlete might run. And what he's ultimately teaching us here is that he prepares himself in the way that an athlete prepares himself meaning I train, you know. I don't go into this without any forethought. I certainly don't go into this without preparing in some way. I train in the same way that a runner is going to train for the race that he or she is running. So at no point is Paul talking about beating his body At no point is he talking about corporal punishment or flogging himself. That's certainly not what athletes do if athletes want to be successful in running a race. And so just by reading around that verse, we get a deeper sense of what Paul was trying to say. So we have to use Scripture to interpret Scripture. Uh, The second thing, foundational hermeneutical principles, the second thing is... Uh, a Latin phrase called sensus literalis, census literalis, and this doesn't mean that we want to interpret the Bible in a rigidly literal way, but instead what it means is we want to interpret based on the sense in which a text is written. And in line with this, what I'll say is we want to employ a literal interpretation in most cases unless the genre Or the text tells you not to. And so, what's an example of a genre telling you not to maybe interpret literally? Well, if you're reading prophecy, or if you're reading poetry, or if you're reading a parable, then you're reading something that, just by the nature of the genre, just by the nature of the literary genre, you're reading something that often employs uh, artistic language, symbolism, metaphor allegory, all of these different literary tools that are important and helpful and beneficial. Um, and, and we have to then figure out what do we do with that, and that's going to be what we're talking about next week, is what do we do with symbolic language and figurative language. Um, but unless you're in a situation where it's very clear that this is figurative language or symbolic language, then we want to interpret it in a literal way. And we want to interpret based on the sense in which it's written. And we also want to just use the ordinary rules of language. The Bible subscribes to just ordinary everyday rules of language. The Bible does not have some other kind of, uh, I don't know, a literary uh, vocabulary that we somehow have to learn in order to decipher it. Um, it applies to normal everyday rules of language. Uh, thirdly, Uh, the implicit must be interpreted by the explicit. Foundational hermeneutical principle, the implicit must be interpreted by the explicit. And and so here's what we mean. When we say this, what we're talking about are things that are implied in a text, but are ultimately speculative. Um, So it's possible that you're reading something And it seems to be saying something, but you're having to speculate. And what we don't want to do is decide without considering any other passages that that must be the interpretation. My speculative understanding of that must be the interpretation. Um, We can't arrive at that without first considering what else is out there. And, and what else is out there that relates to this that is very clear? Again, that's this whole Scripture interpret Scripture thing. Um, but don't uh, base your interpretation, and certainly don't base any doctrine on something that is just maybe implied, or you perceive it to be implied. And so let me give you an example of this. Uh, we've used John 3.16 a lot in this course, easily the most famous verse in the, in the Bible. Everybody knows John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And as we've said before, that verse is often engaged as a single entity, as a single unit. Um, It often isn't engaged within the context of John chapter 3. Often people have that verse memorized, but they don't have a clue what the next verse is or what the verse before it is. And all of those things are important. One of the things, if you're just engaging John 3.16 by itself, one of the things that maybe it, it could imply to you is that all somebody has to do in order to be saved is to just simply believe that Jesus is Lord. Meaning to just mentally ascribe or mentally agree with the idea that Jesus is the Messiah that you could just be walking down the street one day and say to yourself, you know what, I think I'm going to believe Jesus, or I'm going to believe in Jesus. And there are a couple of problems with that. First of all, um, even the demons believe in Jesus. right? Even the devil believes in Jesus. And so just pure belief, pure mental assent, doesn't really get at the heart of what Jesus is talking about. And certainly, plenty of other verses contradict that notion. And so when the Bible uses the word belief, it's, it's talking not just about mental assent; it's talking about confidence. And, and we would use it in this way today. We would say, I believe in somebody. You know, maybe it's your kid. Maybe your kid's a great uh, baseball player, and you say, son, I believe in you. I believe that you can do it. And what you're saying when you say that not, is not that you just mentally agree about something. What you're saying is, is I have confidence in you. I trust that you can do it. And the same thing is true here. We are ultimately talking about faith. Not just placing our mental agreement in Christ, but placing our confidence and trust in Christ. He becomes our hope. He becomes the thing on which everything rests. And so even though this text might imply the other, what we find just a few chapters later is, is this, John 6, 44. Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And so immediately we get a deeper understanding of John 3:16. That first of all, you're not going to come to a place of faith in Christ unless the spirit of God draws you, unless the father draws you to Jesus. He clarifies this even more Uh, Just a few verses later in John 6, 65, and it says, And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And so it's not just about simple mental agreement or mental assent. It is about faith, and ultimately it is the Father who draws us to Jesus. Who draws us to the Messiah? Uh, our fourth primary hermeneutical foundation um, is the primacy of the biblical languages. And here, what we're talking about is referring back to the original Greek and Hebrew to gain an understanding of what those texts meant and what they were implying. Um, So your Bible is an English translation, more than likely. Um, You're reading an NIV, or an ESV, or a King James, or a New King James, or a New American Standard, and maybe you read the, the Message, or the Story, or the Living Bible. I mean, there are dozens, if not hundreds, of English translations of the Bible that are out there today, and some of those things are awesome. Um, Some of them are less than stellar. I think there is value um, in a variety of different kinds of translations. But we also want to refer back to the original Greek and Hebrew to gain the most complete understanding, I think, of what a text means and what it was uh, intending, what the author was intending. And so when you think about this... um, There are all types of translations across the board, and they kind of run a spectrum. And on one end of the spectrum is a literal, word-for-word rendering of the original language. And on the other end of the spectrum um, is what we would call a paraphrase, where the idea is not to literally render each word in the most literal way possible, but instead to provide more of a narrative sense of the thrust of a particular passage or the intention of a particular passage. And so at one end of the spectrum, at the word-for-word end of the spectrum, you have something that's called an interlinear Bible, which is the most word-for-word example, and we'll see this in just a second. And it's, it is so literal that it's, I think, really incoherent to most of us. And so what you have are a few translations that take that literal word-for-word approach, but then apply to it um, just kind of the rules of modern language, the way that words are ordered, and the way that sentences are structured, so that we have a more readable version. And so some of those examples would be the New American Standard Bible, and the English Standard Version, or the ESV, which is one of my favorites. Then you kind of have a middle of the road um, in this spectrum where um, you still have a little bit of that word-for-word influence, but but it's becoming more of a thought-for-thought translation as opposed to a word-for-word. And in the middle of that spectrum is the New International Version. The New International Version is not a full paraphrase, um, but it is not also a true word-for-word uh, translation of the Bible. And that's not to say it's better or worse. Um, that's just kind of where it falls on the spectrum. And I think the NIV um, really does a great job in some areas. And then on the far end of the other side of the spectrum, on the paraphrase end of the spectrum, uh, are things like the message, which I'm going to be honest, I love the message. I love uh, sitting down, when I, when I just want to read the Bible, not when I'm doing in-depth study or anything like that, but when I just want to read the Bible, um, engage it more like a novel, uh, when I want to read a long passage, um, I, I love the message. Um, I think it's really well done. Um, it has uh, taught me a lot. It has shown me things um, that I never really perceived before. And I I just love the way that certain things are phrased. I think it makes a lot of sense in today's world um, to have something like this. And I find it to be a really helpful tool in my own personal Bible study. Now, it's not something I'm ever really going to use if I'm trying to do in-depth study. But when I'm doing observation, man, the message is really helpful because it can give you a great sense of the author's intent um, and so I, I would absolutely say, hey, you may want to start there. You may want to start by just reading uh, a book or a passage of Scripture in the message first a couple of times, and then you can go to your ESV and begin doing more of a word-by-word type thing. And so um, in, in this whole scheme of things, there are, I think, good translations and some that are not as good, um, we're certainly not going to say that a word-for-word word is better and that a paraphrase is somehow subpar. I just think they have different roles that they play. I think they have different purposes, um, and I think all of them uh, are the Word of God, and all of them can be helpful. And people have different perspectives on that, I understand. Um, what, what I want to encourage you strongly to not do, though, is to say that, that one particular translation, which happens to be your preference— is the right one, because, well, that's just not true. And, um, and I grew up in a, wor- in a world where uh, the King James Version was often kind of put out there as being the right version of the Bible, the right translation. If you're reading anything else, then you're somehow a heretic, or you're somehow reading something that is not the Word of God. Well, well that's just ignorant. <laughs> Nothing could be farther from the truth. Um, the people who were reading the King James Version uh, were reading a translation, and it wasn't even the first English translation. Um, they're reading something that has come to us from the Latin Vulgate and the and the uh, the German, and, and even before that, the Greek and the Hebrew. And so anybody that says that they're reading the right translation of the Bible um, or could claim to... Uh, be reading the right translation of the Bible, pretty well better be reading um, the original Greek text or the original Hebrew text. Um, otherwise, uh, nobody has that claim really to make. It's not out there and available for you to make. And so I would, I would just caution you with that. And, um, and even with our English translations, um, there, are, uh, there are different ways that things are translated. And so, as we've said before, there is this linguistic gap. It can be difficult um, to find an English word that is the equivalent of the Greek or Hebrew word that we're trying to translate. And this is something that is common—a common problem in all language translations. But certainly true in the Bible, Um, the way that people phrased things, the way that people communicated thoughts. may not necessarily have English equivalents or have words that truly get to the heart of what was meant in the English. And, and so let me give you an example of this. Uh, this is a verse, 1 Corinthians 7.1. And here's how 1 Corinthians 7.1 reads in the King James Version, and also, I think, in the uh, New Revised Standard Version. It says, it, "...it is good for a man not to touch..." A woman. It's good for a man not to touch a woman. That's what it says. But if you read it in the NIV, it says it is good for a man not to marry. Uh, okay, I, wait a second, I thought this was about touching. Well, no, the NIV says it's about marriage. Okay, well, those seem to be two very different things. Well, if you read it in the ESV, it says it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So, here you have three of the most popular and well-known English translations, King James, NIV, ESV, and each translation renders this verse in a completely different way. So, what's going on here? Well, the word that's in question here in the Greek is the word haptomai, and the word in the Greek literally translated means to touch. Which is why the uh, translators of the King James Bible said it is good for a man not to touch a woman. That is what the word literally means. But it doesn't actually adequately communicate the sense of what the passage was intending to communicate. And I think the NIV doesn't really get it right either. I actually think the ESV gets the most close to what Paul was intending to communicate. He says, to read the whole text, 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 3, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. This is the ESV. Um, Remember the KJV said it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Verse 2, But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. So it's clear, when we read this whole thing, that the sense or the intention of Paul here is to say, hey look, as far as the ministry goes, man, it's it's great to be like me and to be freed up to just do whatever the Lord would have you do. I I don't have kids, I don't have a wife, but look, if, if sexual temptation is an issue for you, then I think the best thing you can do is get married, you know? Each should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband, and they should uh, give each other um, what they have covenanted together in marriage to give to each other. Um, and and so the ESV uses this phrase, phrase conjugal rights, um, but you can see like what the sense is here and what the intention was with the King James translators in trying to interpret this in a literal way, but what the ESV writers have done in trying to make this a little bit more readable and to make it fit more with the intention or the sense of the passage. And so some of what can help us here is what's called an interlinear Bible. Um, It can help us get to the heart of what uh, some of those words most literally mean in the original language. But an interlinear Bible is not something that you really want to read because it may not make a lot of sense, honestly. So again, to use John 3.16, and and by the way, these resources are um, free and readily available online. Just Google Greek uh, New Testament Interlinear Bible or Hebrew Old Testament Interlinear Bible, and you'll find one. There's also something out there called the Blue Letter Bible, which I've talked about, and that's just a great way to find um, uh, a lot of uh, reference material on the original languages, and uh, they have an online uh, Strong's concordance, which will give you insight um, into these original words as well. And so here's John 3.16 in the interlinear Bible. Um, It says this, and these are the most literal translations of the individual Greek words that make up this verse. And so here's how it reads. Thus, for loves the God, the system as besides the son of him, the only generated, he gives that every the one believing into him know should be being destroyed, but may be having life eonian. Right, so, so that doesn't sound like English really, does it? And the reason why is because Greek word order Um, does not subscribe to the way that we order our words in today's English-speaking world. And so what Bible translators are doing is they're ordering this in a way that is faithful to uh, the original language and to the intent of the author, but in a way that is readable and um, engageable by us. And so um, if you're trying to read the interlinear... Uh, It's going to be really frustrating, but if you're using it as a tool to gain understanding about what certain words mean, like the word uh, that's often translated begotten, in the interlinear it says that the best uh, interpretation of that word is uh, to say only generated, only generated, um, and as a secondary to say begotten. But begotten is kind of an older English way of... Uh, It's an older English word usage, which is why the King James Version uses the word begotten. Um, When's the last time you used begotten in normal language, normal discourse? And so uh, those are just some principles and some tools that are out there and available and that I think can be a big help to you as you're doing some word study and language study in Scripture. Next week, we will be talking about uh, the literal versus the figurative in the Bible, and we'll be asking questions about how Um, how we engage things that are symbolic or metaphorical and what we do with them. So I hope to uh, be with you guys next week and uh, have a good one.